my host drove us north from Durban along the South African coast for an hour and some change before turning inland, inland to take us to KwaZulu-Natal. That night, I spoke at the university there to Christian college students. Then the next day, my host drove us from the university through the Valley of a Thousand Hills, a breathtaking gorge between Peter Maritzburg and Durban with beautiful rolling hills as far as the eye can see. And as we drove, we talked about the beauty of the area. We talked about the people of South Africa. We talked about the perhaps the most famous South African ever, Shaka. Then we drove through a small village. And my host slowed the car down as we drove. It wasn't a traditional village. Don't think huts and things of that sort. It looked more like a hastily thrown together housing project full of kind of shanties, unpaid paths. My host asked me a question that that seemed so basic that I thought it must be a setup question. He asked, what do you see? And I scanned the village again and described the small ramshackle homes and the large pots in front that look sometimes bigger than the homes. The signs of poverty, a few children running around, and a couple of elderly people sitting in the African sun. Then he asked me, what don't you see? I was stumped. He was searching for an observation, but it's hard to observe something that's not there. I gave up and asked, what do you mean? My host asked, do you see any men or women in their prime. I looked again with fresh eyes now and searched the landscape. No sign of men or women in their 20s or 30s or 40s. And since I'm nearing 50, and we're talking about young people, 50s either. There were small children, and there were obviously grandparents but nothing in the middle. And I asked why. And my host explained that this village had been ravished by AIDS and other social problems such that an entire generation was pretty much non-existent in that area. Then he asked me this question, which has haunted me for 10 years now. How do you rebuild a society when an entire generation of mothers and fathers are wiped out? How do you replace all the mothers and fathers of a village? The reason that question haunts me is because I believe it's relevant to life in African America, too. This year, we'll mark the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Jamestown, Virginia. Most people popularly think of the transatlantic slave trade as starting about that time with the arrival of what one person, John Roth, described as 20 and odd blacks to Jamestown. By the time the transatlantic slave trade ended over 200 years later in 1866, an estimated 12.7 million Africans had been shipped to the New World. 
About two million died in the Middle Passage, that long sea journey between the African coast and the New World. Most of the 10 million who survived the Middle Passage went to the Caribbean and South America. About 400,000 came to North America and what would become the United States. The Africans who arrived here were either kidnapped or sold or taken prisoners of war by competing African tribes. They arrived, they were undoubtedly confused and defeated. They were exiles, not involuntary immigrants, as one of our officials called them. They were not citizens. The first generation of slaves shared one thing in common, skin color and the suffering afflicted upon people who had that skin color. They were not generally from the same tribes, did not all speak the same language, did not share a common culture or custom. So they were not one people, but many being forced into what we now call the black experience. 250 years of enslavement was followed by nearly 100 years of Jim Crow segregation. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s ended segregation in Jim Crow, but it didn't end the legacy of slavery and segregation and suffering. We are now, beloved, living in the longest continuous period of legal freedom for African Americans ever known. The period from 1965 to the present, just 54 years of free people. So the question becomes, how do you build or rebuild a society that has only known freedom for 50 years? How do you produce culture and cohesion and family and intergenerational transfer of wealth and everything else that goes with being a people when for generations you have not had those things freely and naturally formed? In other words, how do you recover from being an exile in a foreign land? How do you rebuild a once conquered people? That's the issue in our new sermon series this morning through the book of Ezra. Israel was completely conquered by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And they were taken from their land and sent into exile for 70 years. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are like two volumes recording this history and recording the story of the return of Israel from exile back to their homeland. And it's the story of rebuilding a once conquered people to serve God. This morning we want to consider the first two chapters of Ezra. Ezra is chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to hang our thoughts on three points. Number one, God stirs the king. God stirs the king. That's what we see in Ezra 1, verses 1 to 5. Number two, God stirs the leaders of Israel. That's what we see in the second half of Ezra 1, around verses 5 down to verse 11. And then number three, God stirs the people. That's what we see in Ezra chapter 2. God stirs the king, God stirs the leaders, God stirs the people. The big idea for the sermon is this, that rebuilding begins with a divine stirring. If God isn't in it, then it won't happen. And even if it happens in some measure, if God isn't in it, it won't last. It's God who rebuilds people, and it's God whom we need to remember 
and seek. Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them, excuse me, with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was a number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to, to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shep- Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Yeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bibai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonakam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. The sons of Gibbar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. 
the sons of Asmaveth, 42, the sons of Kiriath, Arim, Shephira, and Beeroth, 743, the sons of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of the other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Haram, 320, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Sinai, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Yeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pashur, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the son of Yeshua and Cadmiel of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atir, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Teboth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Basai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephism, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Basluf, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatifa. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasapharaph, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shep- Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareph, Hazabahim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following are those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect on its site. 
According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Amen. The secret to reading the genealogies is to pronounce every name with confidence, even though you don't know what you're saying. (laughs) But notice the first thing, that God stirs the king. Verse 1 gives us a precise date for the book. It's in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That would put this action in about the year 600 B.C., when Cyrus the Great came to power. Verse 1 says Cyrus, king of Persia. At the time of Cyrus's reign, Persia was the largest empire in the world to that date. It covered modern-day Iran, ancient Mesopotamia, Syria, the Arabian Peninsula. That's much of what we would call the Middle East today. But he also expanded into Western Asia and Central Asia, what we would call the the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkestan, and so on. Persia under Cyrus was a a sprawling empire. But how did it get that way? We get a hint in the middle of verse 1 where Ezra writes that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Ezra points us back to the prophet Jeremiah who had prophesied that God would indeed raise up this nation. So keep your finger there in Ezra chapter 1 and and flip forward with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. When Jeremiah chapter 25 is, is where we begin to see prophecy about the fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia. Look there in verses 8 to 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, speaking to Israel, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So those verses are prophesying Israel's captivity by Babylon, and prophesying that they will be in that captivity for seven decades, seven years. But the next couple of verses tell us what happens after that. Verse 12, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. 
So you see the timeline. Babylon comes, destroys Israel. Israel is taken into exile, utterly defeated for 70 years. And after 70 years, God is now going to judge Babylon and raise up a nation to defeat Babylon. It's a promise. And look over in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. There's some words in Jeremiah 29 that are really quite popular that are actually situated in this context. Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, Israel, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So you see, God's plan for Israel now is to return them from their exile back into the land. And then he says this, the words that are known, For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. So you really can't claim verse 11 unless you are in exile. Right? Context is king. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And that's a beautiful sentence if you're in exile. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's God's good promise to his people who he chastises with exile but whom he restores in this promise. But it gets even more specific than that. Turn with me, if you will, to the previous prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. God names a hundred years before his birth who he's going to use for this. When Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 45, 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. There are two things to note about this. First is what I've already said. Isaiah names Cyrus by name 100 years before there is a Cyrus, 100 years before his reign. Second, Cyrus is here called in verse 1, God's anointed or Messiah. That's striking. He's the only Gentile in the Bible who ever gets that label. Now, he's not the true anointed one to come, but God will anoint or have a special mission for Cyrus, and that mission is to set Israel free from their captivity. So we read, jump down to Isaiah 45, verse 13. These words, I have stirred him, Cyrus, up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you're here this morning, you're new to the Bible. It's prophecies like this that cause us Christians to trust the Bible, to believe it. That hundreds of years before the events, God sends people to speak for him, prophets, who sometimes foretell the future in exacting detail. And then we see that detail revealed hundreds of years later. This is why we believe the Bible. It's why we would commend the Bible to you as a book for serious study, as the word of God. 
So when we come back to Ezra now, flip back there with me, and we read Ezra say these words that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, we realize now what we are reading here are the receipts. God made a promise, and Ezra is issuing the receipt. The promise was this, as we just read in Isaiah 45, 13, now mentioned again in Ezra 1, 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing. In verses 2 to 5, give us that proclamation. In verse 2, Cyrus acknowledges that it is the Lord God of heaven who gave him the kingdoms of the earth. So Cyrus knows he didn't do this by his own power. He doesn't even know this God, but he knows that what he has came from this God. The Lord God of heaven is a way of saying God owns everything. So what Cyrus has comes from that God who has created and made and rules all things. And Cyrus has a sense of God's call on his life. Notice what he goes on to say. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, because God stirred the king's heart this way, the people of God are set free to do the work of God back in the land. Verse 3, whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Not only that, Cyrus calls the people of his own empire, people who are not Israelites, to assist the Israelites with silver and gold, goods and beasts, offerings to help rebuild the house there in verse 4. So right from the start, we are to understand that what is happening is happening by God's hand. God planned it long before it began. He announced it a hundred years earlier. And now God keeps his word by stirring up the heart of a pagan king to deliver his people and rebuild his temple and city. There's at least two applications for us in this. Three. Number one, God is in control of our exile, beloved. His people never suffered defeat unless it's by his decree. And defeat will not last a minute longer than God ordains. Exile may be hard, but it is under God's control. Number two, God is in control of our leaders. Doesn't mean every leader is godly. Don't get it twisted now. See how easily the Lord stirred the king's heart. It's an illustration of what we read in Proverbs 21, verse 1, where the writer says there, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So so we're never to panic about any king or ruler. Panic is not a good look on God's people. Not when our God rules all things. Not when he turns the hearts of pagan kings to do his good and holy will. For God is king of kings. And when God speaks, kings, even kings, must obey. Even pagan kings who don't worship him. So the third application is this. Don't faint 
in holding on to God's promise, even in exile. He promised something 100 years ago, and they've been in exile for 70. And ain't no doubt there's some people like, uh, I don't know about that promise. I don't know if this is going to come to pass. And God's taking his time, and he's doing it in his own time, and his time ain't ours. So, so in, your, in your exile, in your suffering, in your struggle, in your waiting on God, don't be tempted to think God has forgotten or God won't deliver. He's in control of your exile. He's in control of those who rule over you. He will deliver on his promise right on time. God stirs the heart of the king, and that's how the people begin to come back to the land. But number two, God stirs the leaders of Israel as well. That's what we see in verses 5 to 11. Verse 5 says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit, there it is again, God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So now this is the leadership class of Israel. It's Judah and Benjamin, two tribes associated with the coming of the Messiah. And it's the priests and the Levites, the a vocation and tribe associated with the temple and worship. They rise up. And through them, God begins to restore the, the leadership architecture of his people. This is not a military uprising. It's a spiritual uprising. God has stirred up what had been lying there motionless in their hearts. He awakened them. He quickened them. He revived them. He brought them to their feet, ready for action. God always begins the restoration of his people with the restoration of their leadership. No nation can return from the effects of exile without awakened, enlightened, spiritual leadership. And this is what God provides for his people. But not only leaders now, notice No set of leaders can do all things by themselves. So as he often does, God gives the leaders favor with others. Verse 6, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. (laughs) What, What God plans for, he also provides for. The truly great work of God cannot be done simply by a few great people. It's always bigger than the leaders. It always requires God to give them favor with others. And we know why that is, isn't it? So that God alone gets the glory. So that God alone gets the praise. And notice, what had been taken out of Israel when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered them, all of the sort of instruments of worship from the temple, what had been taken 70 years ago, verses 7 to 11, Cyrus is stirred up now to give back and send back into Israel. So the leaders will return with the original things used in the worship of God before the exile. Well, how do we apply this today? Well, four thoughts. Number one, God uses means. M-E-A-N-S. God uses means or methods or ways. God's hand is stirring all of this, but the way God normally works is through people and the things that he gives people. Now, he could have Thanos snapped 
gotten rid of all of Babylon and Persia and given the whole world to Israel in a, in a miraculous instant. But that's not often how he chooses to work in the life of his people. In fact, rarely does he do that. Usually what he will make us do is live life. And usually what he will make us do is, is, is use the ordinary means of grace and life to accomplish the extraordinary things that he's doing in our lives and in the world. So if you're, if you're sort of waiting on God always to do something supernatural and miraculous and to take that thing from you in an instant so that you never have to worry about it and you always have victory, you might be waiting a long time. And you might not be using what God has appointed for you to use in order to actually grow in that victory. The things that look so ordinary or maybe even things that look lost to you like the temple instruments that were used in worship. God uses means, beloved. Number two, even a defeated people in exile has resources to rebuild. Israel had been utterly defeated, but, but they still had a leadership class. They, they still had some friends. They still had some resources. Even in defeat, God's people have enough through God. It's sometimes thought that African-American Christianity is, is not a very sophisticated Christianity. There are folks who look at African-American Christianity and they think of it as not necessarily robust theologically and solid and strong theologically. But I'm here to tell you, my grandmama, like your grandmama, your great-grandmama, your great-granddaddy, trusted God in a way through their exile that theologians have never grasped, that academics have never understood. When your mama and your grandmama and your great-grandmama and great-great-grandmama had a little talk with Jesus because he makes everything all right, that was good theology, beloved. That was good, applied, practical theology. It's the kind of theology that believes that even in your exile, God will give you what you need. As the slaves used to say, shoes that fit my feet. No, it ain't the fine Latin of Trinitas and hypostatic union. No, it's the real life theology that helps with brokenness. So God even when his people are defeated in exile, will give them resources to sustain their faith and to rebuild. Number three, notice now, there can be no rebuilding without giving. If a people are going to recover from their defeat, they will have to put something into it. We'll see more of this later, but just note, restoring a people will cost something. Number four, the people are helped by government. Cyrus sends a decree, but they are not finally dependent on government. They are more fundamentally responding to God, not the king. And even the king recognizes that he is responding to God and not just his own will. The king makes things possible, but God is controlling him too. And so we ought be people who are concerned about rebuilding or building who have our dependence in the right place. Not on man, not on chariots and horses, but we depend and trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
which brings us to our third point. See here how God stirs the people in Ezra chapter 2. Let me give you the biography of everybody listed here. Just kidding. (laughs) I heard the panic. (laughs) Ezra 2 gives us a census of the, the first wave of exiles who returned to the land. Don't get lost in the names and the numbers. Zoom out to 30,000 feet and and let's try to get a sense of the whole. Verses 1 and 2 give us the context. We've shifted in verse 1 from the leaders uh, there in chapter 1, verse 5, to the people in general in chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 2 lists the people who led them out. Zerubbabel, who we'll see later, was a governor of the people and becomes a kind of leader that prefigures Christ. Then the chapter breaks down the number of men in, in four sections. We have the common descendants, if you will, from verse 3 down to verse 35. These are the sons of the various houses of Israel. Then in verses 36 to 42, we get the priests and the Levites and those whose job it is to administer worship in the temple. So you got the sort of religious leadership class there. And then you have verses 43 to 58, which give us the servant class. There are the temple servants in verses 43 to 54. There are the sons of Solomon's servants in 55 to 57. Verse 58 says all the servants were 392 in number. Then verses 59 to 63 give us a census of people who returned from the exile, but could not prove that they were descendants of Israel. Verse 62, notice there, says, These sought registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. That's important because Israel is keeping track of the genealogies so that they might actually be able to identify the Messiah when he comes. And the Messiah will be an Israelite. He'll be a Jew won't be a Gentile. He won't have come from, say, Barzillai, who's mentioned here, for example. And so these folks are, are in the exile or in the return, but they are now not counted yet, at least in Israel, because they are looking for one who is clean, one who is pure, one who is not clean and pure merely in a sort of physical descent kind of way, but one who is holy and perfect, and righteous, who will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All total now, there are 42,000 Israelites who returned from the exile in the first year of Cyrus. And in addition to them, there are servants and singers who, another 7,000 or so, bringing the number just over to 49,000 along with their livestock who come back into the land. For the period in history, this is a It's the beginning of a mass movement of people from all across Asia and the Middle East. And when they return, notice in verses 68 and 69, they make offerings for the rebuilding of the temple. So in chapter 1, around verse 6, you had the leadership class and their associates making offering. And now when all the people get back in 68 and 69, they make offering as well. They are giving themselves and giving their resources to the establishment of God's house, his temple, and the reestablishment of the worship of the true God in Jerusalem. So what do we do with this list of obscure family names and this confusing repetition of numbers? Most of these people we'll never hear from again in the Bible. 
What's the relevance? Let me give you a few points of application. Number one, I think when we read a genealogy like this, number one, we're meant to recognize that God counts all his people. God isn't dealing round numbers when it comes to keeping his people. He numbers every one of us. And we see this in the New Testament too, in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying to God in the high priestly prayer, he prays in John 17 verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Then he says this, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. A little bit later, he says in John chapter 18, verse 9, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Once, beloved, you are in God's hands. You're in God's hands to stay. According to Matthew 10, 30, God the Father not only numbers each person, he numbers every hair on your head. So the ones you left on the brush this morning, he subtracted. He knows exactly how many hairs are on your head, and he knows every person who is his. God counts all his people, beloved. Number two, God counts us no matter our status or position. The census includes all the common people first. Then we have the priests and the Levites followed by the servants. All of them are necessary. God's care for us is not determined by our role in the church. Stop thinking you don't matter because you don't have a particular gift or position. Stop thinking you're the only one who matters because you have a particular gift or position. This is the same problematic thinking Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says the church is like a body and each of us are members of Christ's body and each of us are necessary. The whole body is not one giant eye and because the the, the kneecap isn't an eye, he can't say I'm not necessary. Every part matters. Every position matters matters. And when God begins to reassemble his people, he reassembles all of them across every rank and class. So number three, then everyone is necessary for rebuilding. A famed African-American sociologist, really founder of sociology, father of sociology, W.B. Du Bois, argued that a talented 10th, 10%, of African-Americans would lead the masses out of their misery following slavery. He placed the onus of building the people on the elites of the community. He represented one perspective. On the other hand, at the height of his popularity, someone like Marcus Garvey sought to mobilize not the elites, but the masses to form an, an independent black nation. Man has a tendency to lean to one side or the other, to only see half the picture. But according to the Bible, in the example we have with Ezra 2, God requires, calls, and uses everyone, great and small. We cannot rebuild the people of God without all the people of God involved. It's going to take the nation of Israel to rebuild the nation of Israel. So everyone is necessary. Number four, Perhaps most importantly, God keeps his promises. That's what this genealogy 
reveals. They were exiled. They were also returned. They were exiled, but they were not consumed by the other nations. They were exiled, but most of them didn't intermingle with the nations around them. As we said before, this was important, not as a matter of prejudice or racism. It was important because the Messiah had to come through Israel. And that's why they kept the genealogies and kept the census. That's why those who couldn't prove their ancestry were regarded as unclean, as we've said. What we have in the preservation of Israel is also the preservation of the promise to send through Israel a savior for the world. So we come and we read this odd grouping of names, difficult for us to pronounce. These random smattering of numbers of people we won't likely ever meet. Before we leave here today, we will have forgotten all the names in this genealogy. But don't forget this. Those people were what God used to send us Jesus. And through Jesus... God makes for himself a people who were no people into a brand new people. For it's Jesus who comes now not just to save Israel, but to save people from every tribe and language and nation, from every economic class, from every stature. It's Jesus who comes now and makes us one new family through his sacrifice on the cross. For that's where he pays for our sins individually. And that's where he nails our transgressions to the cross so that we don't bear them anymore if we have faith in Jesus. But that is also where he assigns the, he signs the adoption papers, where he makes us a new family, a new nation, a new spiritual ethnicity. A people who had been exiled in our sin have now been returned to our father and returned to our home with Christ. This is the good news. It's here kind of implicit in Ezra 1 and 2, and it gets clearer as the Bible unfolds. And it's, it's a good news that's come all the way down to you and me. And it's for us, this news of God's Son dying for our sins, being raised from the grave three days later, keeping and fulfilling God's promise to save us from hell and from judgment and to make us his own people. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. That story, that promise is for you. God knows all of us. He's counted you. He's seen you. He's observed you. And he has loved you. He's loved you in such a way that he sacrificed his son for you so that you would not be condemned because of your sin. So that you may be made clean declared righteous and brought back to him, brought back home through repentance and faith. That's what God wants for you this morning. God wants you to turn away from sin and put your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, so that you can live forever with him in his love, in forgiveness, and in righteousness. Do that this morning. Confess your sin to God and quit your sin. And put your faith in Jesus and follow him in faith, believing that all God's promises to you are fulfilled in him. 
you want to know more about how to do that, see me after the service, see the Christian friend who brought you after the service. We would love nothing more than to help you understand this promise God makes to you and why you should accept it. We should close, beloved, the way the text closes. You see there in verse 70. What a sweet verse that is. It's simple, but it's marvelous. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. It's no place like home. When the text says they return each to his own town, it does not mean everyone went to their former home and found their bedrooms just like they left it. It does not mean that the town was in the same condition as when they left. Keep in mind, they have been in exile for 70 years. So it's likely that most who returned were born in captivity and had never lived there. So the text means they've gone back to the home of their ancestors. They're returning to a community that is the same time theirs and foreign. They're where they're supposed to be, even though they've never been there before. Now, we cannot rebuild a people or community we refuse to return to. You can't reach the people you won't live with. A physical return does not solve everything, but the solution begins with returning. Let me, let me give you our theory of change here at ARC. We want to plant a church in this community, and we want to plant churches all around the country in communities like ours, because we believe that in inserting a new community, in the context of an old community, um, that new community begins to leaven and to spread into that old community. Now, there's a real difference between what we're talking about in terms of our theory of change and gentrification. So gentrification says, let's plant some people in an old community, new residents in an old community, who, who may or may not have any bearing with that community, uh, and let's, in time, have the new residents push out the old residents and make the community something different. What we're doing here is missions. So we want to plant a community within the community, and rather than have this new community push out the old community, we want this new community to actually bring people into the new community, to bring people into the church, to bring people into the kingdom of God, whatever their sort of social standing and rank and so on and so forth, to, to gather people just as we have been gathered so that the change in the community isn't necessarily economic and physical and all of that good stuff. The change in the community is the change in the people. We came here praying and trusting and betting that God would rebuild the people in this community, that he would do it with the gospel, that he would do it through his church. We came here not fundamentally with an interest in the zip code, not fundamentally with an interest in the real estate. We came here with an interest in the neighbor, to love our neighbors and to love them in that eternal way by sharing the gospel with them. And by seeing them without changing their residence, change their home. So that heaven becomes their home. That the kingdom is their inheritance. And so that the, the work of the kingdom and the rebuilding of God's people spreads through the community and leavens the community.
but a caution. This world is not our home. Even as we look to contribute to building our community, just like Israel here, our true home is glory. So this world should be both familiar and foreign because we belong to another world. The settling into homes in verse 70, that's not God's end game. It's a small chess move. What God will ultimately do is settle us in the new Jerusalem, the heavens and the new heavens and the new earth, made by God's own hands, unshakable for eternity, full of glory, full of love, full of joy. That's where we're going. That's what Ezra gives us a glimpse of. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God of heaven, maker and Lord of all, we call upon you because you reign. We call upon you because you are, are good. And we call upon you because you have promised and you keep your promises down to the letter. And we do confess to you that most days we feel ourselves as having a great work to do, a work beyond ourselves, more than ourselves, a work that requires us all. You've called us to come into this community and not play church, but be the church. You've called us to come into this community and not get enamored with shows, but to really love people, to love each other and to love our neighbors. And you've called us to come into the community and to proclaim the soul-saving message of Jesus Christ and not just to look for comfortable, convenient moments to communicate insignificant things. So we need your help to be the people you've called us to be. Your church is still being built. We are as Christian sojourners and pilgrims and exiles in this world. And then we are called to, to build and to gather. If we're not gathering, then we scatter. So we call upon you for, for help, Lord, divine help. You're the one who stir kings and stir leaders and stir people. Stir us, Lord. Stir us, quicken us. Keep us, Lord, from spiritual indolence. Keep us from spiritual lethargy. Keep us from spiritual dullness. Keep us, Lord, from loving this world. Stir us, Lord. Just like you stirred Cyrus and just like you stirred the leaders of the houses of Israel. Just like you stirred the people to return. Stir us, Lord. We can't do anything apart from your stirring. We will lie motionless and lifeless and ineffective. Stir us. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Renew the broken things. Restore the years the locusts have eaten. Lord, look upon this community with brokenness as long as slavery and Jim Crow and brokenness as long as personal sin 
has ravaged humanity. Look upon this community, Lord, and restore it, we pray, in the power of the gospel and for the glory of Christ and for the joy of the people made in your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.